Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. As always, I'm joined by my producer, Kevin Black. Kevin, happy Labor Day, my friend. Hopefully you've done your best to have a relaxing holiday. I've been able to relax some of the day, which is nice. Fair enough. On today's show, we're going to cover the rest of the lottery talent left on the 2020 big board, as well as go through some playoff observations from the last week. And what lessons and things can be taken away for younger players in regards to development, fit, structure, etc. So without further ado, I want to hop right into the draft discussion. So at number 11 on the 2020 draft deeper big board, we have Isaac Okoro, 6'6 wing out of Auburn. Excellent size, length and strength for a wing weighing in at 225 pounds. Obviously, his physicality is felt more on the defensive end which that's where the scouting report really starts for him. Bullish, versatile defensive piece who can ideally guard one through four in time. Shuffles his feet well, contains opposing players in individual matchups using his hips, and doesn't find himself off balance having to recover all the time. He's the best player in this class when it comes to keeping his man in front of him and maintaining a little space and wiggle room for his man to operate in. When someone does get the edge past him, be it off a dribble move, or use of a screen. Okoro doesn't back down and welcomes the challenge. Excellent quickness to get back, cover the remaining ground, and make a play on the ball. Most defenders, especially young guys, give up on a play once they're beat and leave it to the big man or someone else covering behind the help. But that's not Okoro's style. He's talked about in interviews that he's a competitive player and takes his matchup seriously. Not giving up on a play, taking the responsibility of everything that comes with playing defense, speaks to his character and understanding of what it means to be elite on that end of the floor. Go back and watch his college film, and you'll see plenty of examples of blocks or steals on recovery because he's a ball hawk. His length and quick burst off the ground give him the chance to change the course of a possession, similar to what Matisse Thibel has done in his rookie year with the Sixers. Thibel's greatest strength is that even when he's beat on a drive, he makes up for it with his quickness and length, swatting the ball away on a pass or shot, and leaving the offense humiliated because he came back and he made that play. Okoro isn't quite on Thibel's level in terms of pure instinct, but his feel isn't that far off. And combined with his drive, he leaves teams salivating at the chance to employ his services on the defensive end. In the post, his bulky frame for a wing lets him withstand contact. He doesn't get back down easily, and he's a difficult person to move once he's established his own position defending on the block. That kind of switchability to be on the perimeter wreaking havoc one play, back down in the paint holding his own on the next, that's what makes him the highest graded defensive talent in the class. Although we'll get to someone who can challenge for that spot a little later in the show. We've talked about his hustle and grit, and those traits show on offense as well. Getting out in transition, cutting the basket. He's not afraid to go straight through the defense to get a bucket as much as over it with his verticality on a lob. Okoro's ability to finish tough shots through contact, along with his willingness to work off the ball, give him two skills that are sure to get him offensive touches early on. His ability to take guys off the dribble improved over the course of the college season, but tightening up his handle to take advantage of his athleticism and bounce is something that he really should prioritize developing as much as his jump shot, which that's been the main criticism for Okoro coming into the league. His 12.9 points per game is a decent mark, for a freshman forward, but 28.6% from three-point range leaves a little bit to be desired. 
And the numbers don't get much better when looking at pull-ups inside the arc. I really don't see much wrong with his jumper. I think he could stand to bring his shot up into his release quicker. Maybe not if the base of his shot starts so close to his waist. But the follow-through is pure. Leg base is solid. Gets good elevation off the floor. I think those inconsistencies on his set shot can be fixed in a few years. And with that, his confidence can grow shooting from distance. One aspect of his offensive game that I would love to see a team take advantage of is his ability to seal and post as a wing. If he gets guards matched up on him, he's proven he knows how to pick a spot, seal off his man, quick turn off the catch, and score at the basket. He's mastered some of those moves like a big, and even though there are plenty of examples on film to look at, I still think that was an underutilized part of his game at Auburn. And if he can develop the passing instincts and vision out of double-team situations, should teams catch on to that strength and try to force the ball out of his hands, I mean, that's another way to run offense through him without relying on, on him to can jump shots all over the floor. Now, a lot of the positives we've outlined on offense are, of course, hopeful. We hope that the jumper can become more consistent. We hope that the handle can tighten to the point where he's given the chance to finish through contact as opposed to losing the ball in a strip before he even gets the shot up. There are so many interesting aspects to Okoro's game, and that's why there are a lot of scouts and evaluators who have it much higher than I do. Despite everything he can do defensively, he still has enough to prove on offense. It took Mikhail Bridges years to develop parts of his game to become a much greater offensive threat and get the minutes he's earned with Phoenix to show off everything he can do defensively. When Mikhail first got to Nova, he didn't have a three-point shot off the catch, didn't have that elbow jumper coming off a screen, and his finishing package wasn't even consistent. He was a really long, awkward dude on offense. And even though we're not talking about the exact same physical makeup, we're talking about a similar player when it comes to skill sets. He absolutely has a shot at being better offensively than Bridges has in the NBA and a better defender because of the strength disparity. But right now, that's my baseline comp for Okoro. And if that's the case, I think having him around that draft spot, having him ranked at 11 is good for now. But again, he could show more to earn minutes and be better than I thought. Absolutely a guy that I could have way too low. Next at 12 is a guy who's gained a lot of fans over the last few months and has been spotted as high as two on some boards, and that's Obi Toppin. Now, don't let this ranking fool you. I'm a fan of his game, especially on offense. He's as explosive of a finisher as we're going to see out of this class, aside from Wiseman and Edwards. Toppin is as much of an athlete as those guys, and if you don't agree, go back and watch some of that Dayton film again. 6'9", chiseled, muscular frame. He's not someone you necessarily want to mess around with down low when you combine his size and verticality. I mean, he was born to put people on posters, and he absolutely will at the next level. There's no doubt in my mind. One of the best things about him is that he, he knows that he's faster and a lot more explosive than a lot of the guys who guard him. So he takes advantage of those strengths and looks to run and get out in transition. Toppin sprints out and back on both ends, gets himself right in the middle of the action to make a play. Bigs who do their best to run and hustle are valuable assets to have playing in a game like the NBA with 24-second shot clocks, it's nothing but up and down, at least in the regular season. And when he fills the lane, he's a lob on someone's head waiting to happen. Let him fan out and sprint to the corner, he's going to hit that triple. 
How many bigs can do either with such proficiency like Toppin did in college? We're talking about similarities to a big like Jaron Jackson Jr. who earned himself a top four selection because of his offensive versatility at the power forward spot. Triple J can do the same two things. Finish a lob in transition, beating everyone else down the floor, or sprint out to the corner and knock down an open three. So right away, we're talking about two valuable open court strengths to get top in minutes and touches right out of the gate. As much as his corner shooting was a strength in transition, same thing applies in the half court. In a league that's so dominated by four out one in offense, Toppin brings that style to the pros in bunches. He can stretch out the defense as much as he can act as a dangerous role man in pick and roll sets. It's almost like he was tailor-made to play offense at the four spot in today's NBA. Is he an adept ball handler and playmaker? I wouldn't say so. I think some of the gushing about his passing is a little overrated. But at the same time, that's not going to be his job. It doesn't have to be his job. Why do I necessarily want Toppin trying to post up and have the offense run through him in that sense when those play types are dying out more by the day anyways and he can legitimately rack up points and bunches in other ways? It's just not necessary. He's began improving his handle and taking his man off the dribble to create and score in the mid-range. He has some swift footwork to get around other bigs and turn to a spin or finish. Those will eventually be more prevalent parts to his game. But out of the gate, he'll likely be asked to just keep it simple. Pick and roll finishes and easy open threes. And those are shots that can be used as high-volume weapons. So Toppin will have the chance to lead rookies in scoring right out of the gate, depending on which team he's drafted to and what their vision is of him. So Nate, Toppin's offensive game sounds as appealing as anyone in the class. So why do you only have him at 12? Well, defensively, he has some real problems that he's going to have to remedy so he can put to use everything he does so well on that end of the floor. Right now, he's without a position on defense. Doesn't move well enough laterally to keep perimeter guys in front of him. Not a rim protector by any stretch on rotations. I mean, yeah, he, he, he can make some closeouts and he has enough length to bother shooters in that sense. And he is a big enough body to put on someone in the post to make their life harder. But he doesn't play out of pick and roll situations well defensively. He gets beat by the perimeter guy and seems to just not recognize where the ball's going and react quick enough. I'm not sure what to do with him defensively right now other than put him on the other team's least usage guy. He's going to need to live in the film room and study just how he needs to attack pick and roll defense because opposing offenses are going to put him in those actions and attack him constantly. Or if he's not guarding a ball handler or set screener, he's going to run into situations off the ball where they will screen to get his man open. And if he doesn't see it coming and react quick enough, it's going to be an easy open cutter jumper. It's a great prospect and a good kid, but situational defense isn't his strong suit. It's definitely something he needs to put real time into in order to develop. Otherwise, he's potentially a poor man's John Collins. Collins is as potent of, of a forward offensively that you'll find in the league right now capable of hitting open three-point shots. Certainly an, an amazing pick-and-roll finisher, cutter, someone you don't want to mess around with in transition. But again, defensively, he's not a rim protector. You can't play him at center. He gets beat by perimeter guys all the time when he's playing the four spot. Toppin will get attacked the same way. And if he can't improve past what he is now, high floor being Collins, that's his destiny. So again, I love Toppin's offensive skill set, what he brings to the table. He's a big body. You can get buckets in a variety of popular sets. He cares. He gives a shit. He'll rebound on both ends. 
So he'll put up counting numbers to win a rookie of the year award. But you've seen it with Collins in Atlanta. You're seeing it now with Michael Porter Jr. in Denver. If you're a forward who's stuck in between those bigger spots defensively, you're not going to play as many minutes as your offensive game says you should, period. So that's why I have Toppin at 12. So at 13, we have another player that's going to take the draft community by surprise, similar to Cole Anthony at 1 and R.J. Hampton at 8. For me, that's, that's Jaden McDaniels. He's been killed and killed again by scouts all year because of his inconsistencies compared to the overall talent base that he brings to the table. 6'10 forward prospect who possesses great length, perimeter scoring skills, and defensive versatility either the three or the four. Ideally, he's a small ball four on both ends, but I'll get to why his destiny may be at the three in different lineups. Let's start with his offensive skills package. In high school, he gained incredible traction because of his ability to create and hit shots off the dribble. Even though he has such size and length, he took advantage of opportunities to pull up and shoot over the defense and, and attack and get a bucket at the rim every time. Has that led to some of his percentage, not what you'd expect by someone his size? Absolutely. Settling for outside shots and being able to make them is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because that's a dimension of his game that makes him unique. And quite frankly, it's an unguardable shot in theory, given where he can release the ball on a jumper. No one's blocking his shot. On the other hand, only taking shots outside will limit efficiency because you can't make those shots every single time, particularly when he's surrounded by or in the vicinity of multiple defenders doing their best to bother him. I've seen McDaniels get into rhythm where he's piling on, he's piling on those points and looks, deflating the defense because he's torching them, and there's nothing they can do to stop it. But I've also seen this style of offense at its worst. Seeing McDaniels have games where he can't buy a bucket from the outside, especially when the defense dares him to shoot it from deep range, his lower base on a shot isn't consistent yet. Whether it's a lower body strength issue, or he just never focused on how to plant his feet and set his body towards the basket, you can tell every time he shoots, his lower body never starts and stops in the same place. He'll kick his legs out some, rotate his hip forward to help push that ball to the basket, doesn't always look pretty. Now, his upper body mechanics, I don't have a problem with. Keeps his right elbow tucked in, arm straight, brings the shot up and follows through. Textbook mechanics on his gather and release. If he can clean up the base of his shot, I'd be scared to learn how many shots he can hit from deep, given that he's so comfortable in both catch and shoot as well as off dribble pull-ups. Pulling up outside, aside from that, his handle's tight secure enough when he tries to navigate through the defense off the move to hunt for an easy drive to the basket. He can hit shots from close range. A lot of his points inside, though, are actually generated through hustle and putbacks. And I really want to get into talk about his energy as a huge selling point that I don't think was given enough attention this year. Coming out of high school, it was a popular opinion to think that he didn't care about basketball enough. There were plenty of times where McDaniels was seen as uninterested and lackadaisical. That was far from the truth at Washington on both ends, quite frankly. Offensively, McDaniels used his length to hunt for, for boards and easy putbacks. Defensively, he was a nightmare for opposing, defense, opposing offenses off the ball. Number of steals and blocks he got off playing passing lanes and weak side opportunities shocked the hell out of me. I didn't have any idea that was part of his game, or the offensive rebounding for that matter. And that's why I really think that he should be positioned to play at the three versus the four 
because having him on the perimeter clogging up those passing lanes, if you're telling me that, that you can put him there and he's going to average two to three steals a game, those are, I mean, th- that's a great number of possessions where he can get his team out in the break, and those are easy, easy buckets down the court, especially during the regular season when there's a lot more pace played to the game. So again, if he plays with that kind of energy in the NBA, continues to fill out as much as his lean frame can, and puts all that together with a smooth shot making from outside at his size, you're telling me he won't effective and be effective in the pros? Sure, he might be a few years away from reaching that potential. But if you have as good of a developmental program as anyone, and you have faith in McDaniels as a person to continue to bring that kind of attitude to work every day, why wouldn't you want to take a chance on him at this point? Even late in the lottery, you can hunt for stars. Just look at the draft the last few years. There are legitimate, fantastic star prospects coming later in the lottery because teams didn't want to take a chance on him with earlier picks. McDaniels is as much of a boomer brust guy as there is, but a big part of the draft is gambling. I'm taking my chance drafting a 6'10", two-way playmaker who could end up being one of the best players in this class. To round out the lottery grades at 14 is precious a chew out of Memphis. I understand the argument why, why there are scouts who wouldn't have him this high on a board. Offensively, he was a little bit of a mess in college. Certainly times he cared too much about showing off the offensive shot from outside to prove he had one and settling for created bad looks, giving the opposing team easy long rebounds and transition opportunities. We get it. Achua isn't a shooter yet. Mechanically, I don't think he's far from becoming more of one. His development in that area has a long way to go, sure. But he's a relentless finisher inside. High-level Duncan Lob threat due to his athletic talent and size at 6'9". He has the length and positional strength to play center in the NBA, and that's exactly what he is. He was billed as a forward coming out of high school, really played a lot more on the perimeter. I mean, that couldn't be further from the truth in terms of where his strength and his skill set really lies. Coach Hardaway caught on to that pretty quick and put a shoe in position to, to better utilize a lot of his tools as a finisher and a rebounder. And man, is he relentless on the glass on both ends. He's already quite the guy to move out of position, but he gets to his spots, plays angles, and his box-out technique is some of the best in his class. Excellent lower body strength, uses his butt as well as anyone could, pushing his man away and out, explodes up for the ball, and has excellent hands to corral on a rebound. If Achua gets in position to box out, it's almost a wrap. He doesn't let taller or longer guys beat him to the ball, and he sure doesn't back down from anyone who thinks they're stronger than him. That kind of mentality on the glass will let him be successful in the NBA, just like in college. I wouldn't be surprised if he led all rookies in rebounds if he gets the minutes to do so. Trust me, he's that good. Defensively, though, is where he's going to make his mark in the NBA. His lateral quickness, foot speed, size, strength, and length all together give him a real shot at being able to guard one through five at least in a pinch. It's rare a guy comes into the league and you have that glowing of a compliment to give him. Usually as a rookie, when you're talking about the ability to defend, you're naming two to three positions, not four or five. I said one through four about Okoro, and I mean it. And I mean this about Precious as well. He's not as great of an off-ball talent as I'd like him to be. He has work to do in the film room too, and I've heard mixed reviews regarding his basketball IQ. But the package is too tantalizing to pass up. If he's able to put points on the board combined with his defense and rebounding, That's a rotational floor with plenty of starter upside. I can't pass on that kind of talent in the lottery. So that pretty much rounds up the lottery portion 
of Draft Deeper's 2020 big board. I feel incredibly confident about the names on that list, as well as the projections that have been discussed here on these last on these first few episodes. If you've missed anything up to this point, go listen on the same feed you found this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. The support means anything, means everything. Certainly leave some reviews, ask some questions, email us draftdeeper at gmail.com. If you have something or somebody I want to go back uh, to, to ask questions on or cover, please, I would absolutely love to answer any questions out there. So to end the show here, I wanted to round up some thoughts and takeaways I have about the NBA playoffs over the last week and where we're at now. We're taping this show on Monday, September 7th, so forgive me if by the time you hear this, nothing I said has timely value. Let's start with what has to be the biggest surprise out of these semifinal matchups in Miami, leading Milwaukee three games to one. Could have had the sweep, but Milwaukee pulled together to close out game four. I think the biggest reason why the Bucs didn't get swept, and this is going to go over some people's heads, is because Giannis wasn't on the floor. And I, under no circumstances, want that to be some hot take that gets traction. This media outlet does, doesn't like Giannis, think he's a, not a top player. That, that's the furthest thing from the truth, man. But just sit back and logically take a look at the team that's built around him. Eric Bledsoe at the guard spot can shoot threes, but that shouldn't be something he's asked to do in volume. Same goes for Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez, two guys who have proven they can be efficient from three but shouldn't be asked to do so in volume. Milwaukee loves to space the floor around Giannis and give him the paint to operate in because that's what he does. He drives and crashes into and through the defense for volume looks inside. The problem is his personnel is built to play inside out. Bledsoe's career was made off of driving to the basket, scoring inside the arc. Middleton's a three-level scorer, but he's always been a better mid-range operator than standstill three-point shooter. Lopez lived around the basket for the majority of his career, killing teams on post-ups and easy face-up shots told to 15 out. Yesterday, when they were allowed to go back to doing what they've done for most of their careers, notice how the three-point shots started to fall more frequently than they had been in this series and in the bubble, especially earlier in that game when Giannis was playing. I, I saw the stat. At one point, they were one for nine on those deep shots. Giannis goes out of the game. Seven for 20. That, that's a big difference when you compare the two numbers. Again, not great shooting, but certainly a lot better than one for nine. And when you allow players to score and see the ball go in from where they're more comfortable at, it does wonders from a mental aspect to further stretch their games outside. Bledsoe started hitting jumpers. Middleton had some of the biggest threes of his career up to this point. Lopez started cooking again from deep. You can't look at guys to play a completely different role than what they're used to playing all the time so they can be a better fit around a star who, quite frankly, is becoming more and more one-dimensional by the game. Giannis hasn't even been able to make free throws reliably. Forget about converting on jumpers. He's been a limited scorer in the playoffs, and if your offensive attack is the same thing over and over again, I can assure you the great coaches and teams figure out how to stop you. Are we really surprised that Eric Spolstra a head coach who made his living in the film room, sat back and figured out how to wall off a downhill driver. The fact that those players are also playing out a role, in a sense, makes his life even easier because the second, third, and fourth options are also out of sorts in their own way. 
I think there were a lot of people jumping on the trendy side and picking Miami. Producer Kevin's certainly one of them to upset Milwaukee because of the good things they've seen for Miami. But Giannis's shortcomings have been as much to blame here or put stock into as any other reason. And it's why player development coaches stress building out your game past one reliable skill. It's why off-the-dribble scoring is as important now as it's ever been. You need to be as versatile as possible as an offensive talent, or you better not be expected to score in volume. There are plenty of specialists out there that can certainly get their own, get their own shot in terms of a standstill three-pointer catch-and-shoot specialist like J.J. Redick, inside finishers, interior guys. I mean, they're asked to do one thing, but that's their job is to just do that one thing. They're not going to be asked to do that thing in volume and volume and volume and volume throughout the entire game, having those attempts pile up as like 20-plus shots. Defense and, and coaches are too good nowadays to let you do that same thing over and over again at that volume and get buckets. It's why you have guys other than those specialists around them to confuse and drag out the defense to other areas of the floor so that those specialists can keep getting those good looks, not just running the same play over and over and over again. The best offensive players in the NBA can score from all three levels and can make plays for others when the best shot for them isn't there. Giannis is an MVP. He's earned the awards and all the praise. But until he's able to bring more to the table in the playoffs offensively than drive and dunk, he's, he's not going to win a championship. And I believe in Giannis. I still think he has multiple different levels to hit. I do think he's going to be able to, to, to create a better jump shot than what he has, at least inside the arc. I think his pull-up game leaves some to be desired, but that's something he works on all the time. He, he spends a lot of hours, as reported, uh, in, in the practice room with, with, with Kyle Korver. Great shooting specialist. He'll put the work in. He's going he's gonna to get that jumper in time. We haven't seen him at his apex yet, but that, that's what I'm seeing right now. And Just another valuable lesson for young guys out there. Don't just lean on one thing. Be as diverse of a talent and work on as many things as possible. Have more than one great skill. So moving in the same direction as Miami, I want to throw Boston in this part of the conversation as well because I think both teams are built to play the same way. The Celtics are the wing-oriented version versus Miami relying more on guard play, but they're both constructed to operate the same. The Heat have three perimeter players tasked with handling the ball, making decisions, and creating when the play breaks down, handling that extra responsibility and pressure. Goran Dragic, Tyler Hero, Jimmy Butler, those are the guys. They're the ones creating constantly, taking the majority of off-the-dribble perimeter shots, again, the role players' quality looks. Boston, that same virtue as Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, they do the same exact things and are tasked with the same responsibilities. Three clear-cut options. Then you have the role players around them who are asked to do one to two things offensively and defensively and stick to those things. Fall in line, do the job you've been asked to do, don't deviate from your role. If the play breaks down, give it to one of the three guys previously mentioned to create. And on both teams, they've all been invaluable and disciplined. Duncan Robinson, Jay Crowder, Kelly Olynyk, Iggy. For Miami, for Boston, Marcus Smart, Brad Wanamaker, Rob Williams, all coming in and playing to their strengths and sticking to the game plan no matter what. And going back to that star conversation, these aren't stars, but you need the role players who can come in and do that one thing or two things incredibly well. So it's not the end of the world if you can't do everything. If you can do more things, great. 
than even just good, that's how you build out your path to being a star. But even if you can only do one to two things great, if you recognize where you can come in, contribute those strengths in the right situations, recognize where to deploy yourself and when, you're, you're as valuable as any other player on the court, and that's what you're seeing in these playoffs. When everybody comes together collectively as a unit, listens to their coach, listens to leadership, does the job that's asked of them, these are the teams that are winning games in the playoffs. If adjustments need to be made, leave that to the coach. Make those adjustments when you're asked. Don't deviate from the game plan before a coach would tell you to. Those players that are succeeding, they're not doing it all themselves. Both coaches and players are on the same page. That's what works in the NBA. Last but not least, you have two big men anchoring their teams on both ends, doing a lot of the same things in terms of operating out of the high post, making decisions on where traffic needs to be directed and where the ball needs to be funneled to in order to succeed at a high level. Bam Adebayo, as unique a skill set as anyone in the league at that center spot, can bring the ball up the floor, create off the dribble, as much as he can turn and find guys facing up at the top of the key, as well as operate and dribble handoff actions. On Boston side, though, I know Daniel Tice, again, he's, he's not that same player. I'm not trying to say that Daniel Tice is as good as Bam Adebayo, but he operates out of the same areas in those more simple actions and plays a big part in why Boston's offense is so effective. He's not just involved in high picket rolls. He catches the ball in the high post and directs traffic like Bam. Excellent roll man, knows when to hand the ball off, sets solid screens. In a pinch, he can hit the jump shot when the defense doesn't respect him, just like Bam did. You saw, you saw Bam in their last game. He, he certainly uh, put pressure on hitting that jump shot. Two mobile centers doing more than what a big man would be asked to do previously. I mean, these two guys are changing how we evaluate center prospects coming into the draft. They're changing how those guys are developed. Even out west, AD does a lot of the same for the Lakers. P.J. Tucker with the Rockets adds a mobile dimension to the center spot. The positions just change so much, and all these guys are anchoring their teams and carrying them to great heights. A lot of this isn't talked about enough, and I'm glad to shine the spotlight on the big guys who deserve it. So again, from a draft perspective, big guys, diversify your offensive skill set. I, I know the post-up isn't the, the biggest offensive set these days to run, but there's more for a big man to do than to just take a guy in the block and score over either shoulder. Work on that jump shot. Work on facing up. Recognizing where your guys are on the court at all times. Being able to pass in certain situations. Move the ball when you're not able to take somebody off the dribble. If you don't have the best handle, again, you can pass out of some of those situations. And when you're on the block, be able to pass out of the double team. I can't stress that enough. Guys are going to double team you on the block, especially if you're a big physical presence like Embiid. You need to be able to certainly respect the defense enough and be able to pass out of those situations to get a good guy and open look at a three. So those are my main thoughts from the playoffs and what they mean from a development and scouting perspective. I know we have Clippers Nuggets and Lakers Rockets going on. Two great series out West, but I think we know who will prevail in each respective one. I'll look forward to touching more on the Lakers and Clippers in the playoffs as the series go on. Kevin, is there anything else you wanted to hit on really quick before we wrap up this week's show? Nope, I'm all good. All right. Well, as always, 
Thank you so much for listening to the Draft Deeper podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Trust me, we'll be back next week with another great show, but I hope everyone enjoys the rest of their week.